Welcome to Fred Buzz the Podcast. I'm Joe McMurray. And I am Aaron Sefchik. And today we are very pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Sean Purcell. He's an incredible jazz guitarist. Um, he was my teacher, and um, he is a the guitarist for the Navy Commodores Band. And he is a uh, professor at George Mason University teaching arranging and jazz guitar. And you do some piano as well. Uh, I can play a little bit of piano, but I, I wouldn't really play in front of any uh, other audience members. But yeah, I do play yeah. the piano, but I don't definitely don't teach it. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, um, yeah, we're we're glad to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate yeah. having me on. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, I guess where I wanted to kind of start was just again mentioning that I had the opportunity to work with you back in. 2016. Oh man, um, the years are uh, time is yeah, long. Yeah, it flies by. But yeah. I, I've worked with other teachers, and mm-hmm. I, I've got a lot of respect for all of my teachers. But I think that your style of teaching, it fit well with my, just the way I think and the way I learn. Awesome. Um, yeah, it just it connected well with me, and I think that it it was the right fit for me. And I literally have my notebook full of your stuff right within arm's reach of me right now. Excellent. A plus. And, a yeah, plus. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, it, it was a very, you have a very methodical way of teaching, which, which was good for me. Um, you know, I'll never forget running bebop scales off of the root of every chord, the third of every chord, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth, all that, uh, especially over a, uh, was it Lazy Bird? Or- oh yeah, Lazy Bird. All yeah, we did all kinds of stuff. I guess. Oh, yeah. that's great. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that, Joe. I mean, I I try to be methodical, but I also try to work with each student. So I, you know, some students do well with the methodical. Some don't do quite as well with the methodical. So I try try to adjust, but I I definitely sneak the methodical in there no matter what, because I think it's just important to kind of develop a methodical practice routine. Yeah. Otherwise you find yourself, you're not as efficient in your practice time. You know, right. Time is precious. Right. Yeah. As you probably know, now that you're done with school, you know, time just kind of flies by. And I feel like a lot of students think that when they graduate, they're going to have more time. So I think a lot of students have, not a lot of students, but students definitely like their first couple of years have the attitude of, I can't wait to get out of school so that I can practice more. Uh, but I try to let them know that this is probably one of the most fertile periods for practicing that you're going to have. So use that to your benefit. Um, so developing a method early on, I think is important so that when you do find that you're running out of time because you have gigs or you're teaching yourself or you're, you know, whatever you're doing, you still can, get something done, even if you have 30 or 40 minutes. And if you're not methodical, it becomes difficult to, to do that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely those times when I'm, I'm, I decide I'm going to play for fun for a little while and I'll put on a backing track and I like 15, 20 minutes later, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm still playing. Yeah. So I try not to do that too much. That's great. And I, you know, and I think that for me, I, I try to tell students too um, that if you're super busy when you get out of school and you don't have much time to practice, but you're doing music, that's great. 
that means you're being successful. So I, I feel like if you have enough time to, if you feel comfortable with all of the projects you're doing and you feel uber prepared all the time, uh, then not that there's something wrong, but maybe you're not working as much as you need to be to be successful. So I, I, I spend most of my time feeling just sort of not overly prepared in any one area. Um, but I, I try to embrace that and try to think that that's, that's a good thing. And I hope that that's what my students are going to have as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, it's not comfortable not being, I feel very uncomfortable not being prepared, but it is something that's always there. I yeah. always wish I had more time to. Yeah. I, to I, yeah, you, you kind of, I feel like I kind of live in this bubble of feeling semi-prepared for everything, mm-hmm. but never really having enough time to just feel like, man, I've got this one thing dialed in and then I can move on to the next project after this. It's sort of like this fluid thing where all of these different projects, like between the Navy, between George Mason, I'm getting ready to record a record at the beginning of March. So I'm writing music for that, making sure that I'm getting rehearsals and charts written for that. Uh, Still trying to write for the Commodores, so big band charts, uh, preparing for classes, grading, trying to do gigs. Uh, you know, I'm married. So then, <laughs> so it's like all of these things just kind of are happening at once. And, and I try to be as prepared as possible, but I feel like uh, in a way I, I try to step back and think I'm happy that I don't have enough time to prepare for everything. Cause that means that I'm busy and working. So that's, yeah. yeah. So I like that bubble. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's a good bubble to be in. I find with uh, most most of my students, I'm going to say 80, 85, if not even more students, uh, getting back to this idea of practicing, most of people um, don't know how to practice. Um, sure. They, that, that's a very big gray area for, pre- for people in terms of if you only have a half an hour of time uh, per day. And structuring that half an hour. Sure. So, so you get the best of your ability into that half hour. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I, I think that um, practicing practicing how to practice is almost as important as just the actual act of practicing the instrument. Yeah. So I still find myself trying to tweak how to be more efficient. If I'm, say, working on – if I want to start to work on, like, diminished scales, diminished patterns, I have mm-hmm. to try to – develop some kind of methodical approach to it so that, yeah, when I do have just 30 minutes, I can actually accomplish something and not just feel like I've wasted 30 minutes just thinking about this particular concept. So, yeah, I I feel like, like it's another lifelong endeavor to just keep developing your practice routine and changing it and assessing it. Like when you're 20, my practice routine was one way, but now that I'm, in my forties with a little less time, maybe I have to structure it a different way. When, um, when you have uh, out of curiosity, when you have a new student that comes in to you, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the common um, mistakes or um, bad habits that a student will have when it comes to practicing or whatnot like that? Oh boy. I, I think that I don't want to overgeneralize my students, but I, right, right, I would right. say that most kids coming in as like say a freshman in college mm-hmm. uh, haven't really developed a practice routine. They, they sort of practice just different stuff. So as different concepts are thrown at them, they just kind of practice that. So if they're in jazz band in high school, they'll practice a chart. 
or they'll see someone on YouTube talking about how to superimpose pentatonic scales over chords. And so then they practice pentatonic scales over chords because they think, hey, that's pretty cool. That sounds cool. Right. Uh, then they'll throw in, I guess, techniques. So I, I feel like not that it's a mistake, but most students come to me as freshmen not necessarily having a specific practice routine or knowing how to put together a practice routine. Okay. Practice routine. I mean, it, it shifts, it shifts for me based on what I have on the horizon work wise. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, I, like I had a jazz gig on Thursday night for Valentine's day with the duo and my whole routine for the week really shifted to prepare for that. Sure. My, my warm-ups became more jazz warm-ups. My, you know, my, the bulk of my time was spent on jazz concepts and jazz, you know, making sure I was tight on the charts and that sort of thing. Sure. Whereas, like, this week I don't have a – I've got a more of a bar brewery kind of gig coming up. And so I have – you know, it's going to be more rock-oriented. Right. I'll, I'll sneak in some of my jazz tunes. But I, I definitely shift my routine from week to week. Sure. And I think that that's just knowing how to do that as well is important. It's like, you know how to do that. So that works for you. So yeah, like today I'm playing a, a five hour Hasidic Jewish wedding gig. Five so like, hours. Yeah. So just oh in that God. one gig, I'm going to play solo acoustic guitar for the ceremony kind of pseudo. It's not really jazz, but it's kind of Yiddish music, but we play the head and improvise. So it's, it's a jazz presentation of that and then for the mm -hmm. actual uh, main portion it's very heavy rock but yiddish tunes um <laughs> well yeah so i i you know it's, it's definitely different than when i'm teaching bebop scales at mason on thursday or doing a commodore concert uh so yeah you have to you know if you're wearing many hats like some musicians uh some guitarists if they're only doing jazz then they can tailor their practice routine that way and then prepare for gigs as they come. But yeah, if you're doing like duo gigs, rock gigs, maybe a show here and there, a solo guitar gig, um, you know, just leaving space to be able to bone up on that stuff, just practice that stuff or just dust off. Like if I have to play a rock gig, dusting off those tones and just the equipment that I have, making sure my gear is correct for each set up. So yeah, allowing time to practice for other projects is probably a big portion of it as well. Yeah. So where did you, where did you start? I've, I forgot where you went to school and how did you, how did you even get into music in the first place? Um, my, I sort of, I sort of was trapped into music. My father's side of the family, um, everybody in my father's side of the family is a professional musician or was a professional musician. Um, literally my aunt, my uncle, my dad, my grandfather, all professional musicians. So I just kind of grew up around it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I got into, I, I played piano, I think starting at five mm -hmm. and then at 12, uh, you know, I discovered groups like Led Zeppelin and Ozzy Osbourne and those type of groups. And so I just wanted to play guitar at 12, but I was told by my parents that to play guitar, I had to continue to play piano which I didn't really enjoy. Now I regret, I wish I would have enjoyed piano more, but yeah, so I started playing guitar at 12 and just kind of the same way probably everybody else did it. Just picking off. Like, uh, I remember hanging out with a friend of mine and we had like a 
we were playing Kiss Alive, the live record, and Ace Freely had this like pentatonic run on Love Gun, and I was sitting there like trying to figure out like what's what's Ace Freely doing on the you know on this, and so that was how I started out. I played in a church folk group when I was twelve as well, which was cool because I got to learn all the open string chords and how to strum tunes, and I just you know had a lot of um, folks around me that did it professionally and were musicians so it was you know i'm grateful that i had so many people at that early of an age helping me or just telling me what what i needed to practice what i needed to work on but yeah i probably started like everybody else i guess um i was a big metalhead steve Vai was like my first real huge influence um van halen all that stuff um, and then I, when I got to college, that's really when I got into jazz. So I wasn't really like my dad was a jazz musician. So since he was my dad, uh, I thought, well, jazz, if my dad plays jazz, then I don't really like jazz. <laughs> my you know old father plays it. So I didn't really enjoy it that much until maybe high school. I got around some cats that played, you know, they were playing like Donnelly and song for my father. And so I got into it and didn't. Like I, I got like a Charlie Parker record, a Coltrane record and a Miles Davis record. And when I first heard it, I was like 17 or something. I just, I didn't, I don't want to say I hated it, but I just didn't see what all the appreciate was about. Yeah. So I, I, but, but these guys that I was playing with really dug it. So I sort of went along with it and then it, eventually it started to develop in a, into a love for jazz for, but for sure, like by freshman in college, I was like super, hooked to be like a straight ahead guitar player, jazz guitar player. Were you involved in any symphonic band or anything like that in high school? No, when I was in high school, I played, I was more on the sports end of things, but then I had like garage bands probably from the time I was a sophomore through the rest of high school. So, you know, doing just like cover band yeah, yeah. stuff, playing, po- you know, poison covers, that kind of, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, so like, you know, all the finger tapping and the, yeah. I had like an old Ibanez with like a Floyd Rose. And so like learning all the Steve Vai whammy tricks and stuff like that. That's so no, no real symphonic um, experience. Uh, but because my dad was a professional musician, he would put me on gigs that I really probably shouldn't have been on. I wasn't ready for. Um, and so I could, uh, yeah, when I was like a senior in high school, I played the ice capades for a week. Um, and was doing gigs probably by the time I was like 15 playing like weddings and gigs. So I wasn't really ready for it, but it was a good experience. It kind of showed me what it was like to be a professional guitar player, even though I wasn't at that level yet. Awesome. So your dad kind of helped push that a little bit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I worked with dad. Um, really I left Pittsburgh in like my early twenties. So I worked a lot with him from like a, as a teenager into my early twenties. Um, so yeah, all, all that experience was great. And he taught me to about reading. He taught me about like Freddie green for count Basie, how to chunk, 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 and all of this stuff that I just didn't at the time care about or particularly like, but now I look back on it and it was a great, great experience. Great, great help and great advice for sure. So yeah, being a pro musician, I, I, I I don't know. I I guess I had a decision to make to do it, but I never really felt like there was anything else I wanted to do. Right. You're lucky. (laughs) Well, I guess so. So, 
I don't know if a lot of people would say lucky, <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was, um, I, I, that's another thing with my students, like at Mason is I, I know that 95% of the students that I run into, maybe even a higher percentage don't have parents that are pro musicians or don't have parents that are even maybe even interested in music. And there's kind of like a little bit of a battle, uh, because most, I don't want to say most parents, but a lot of parents aren't particularly uh, thrilled when their kid comes and says, I want to do jazz studies for my college degree. Yep. Um, so I just have to kind of also realize that as part of teaching, and I know Darden, my wife, that runs the program at George Mason, um, we try to give them like real life experiences in the way of like gigs and performances and try to teach them also how to be a musician because it's it's more than just practicing bebop scales it's it's you know where dressing appropriately showing up on time knowing that if it's a rock gig you can't bring like a, a super 400 gibson with mm -hmm. a totally clean sound and do the gig like you know these are things that i somewhat took for granted just because i saw it as a young player yeah. uh, but a lot of students just don't have that experience they just don't know anything about just the actual act of being a professional musician, I guess. Right. Right. Real, real life situations. Once yeah. You get, once you get out of school and sure. And actually making money for yourself and going out there and treating right. yourself as a business. And sure. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we try to do as much, I mean, I, I meet with my students once a week for 14 weeks a semester. Uh, so it's, it's just a woefully uh, short amount of time. Yeah to teach them all of this stuff. So just try to give them bits and pieces as it goes for sure. I thought one of the most helpful classes at Mason, I think I've said this on a prior podcast, but was the art of teaching music. Mm -hmm. That class was split into two halves and for half the semester, we actually learned how to teach more effectively. There was a yeah. lot of teaching philosophy and like actual, like, teaching it she'd bring in a the professor would bring in some of her private students and we'd one per one student in the class would teach that kid and everyone would analyze what they did and right like it, it made me think about the approaches i have to teaching and dealing with different people and different needs Absolutely. the other half of the class was uh i mean they taught us how to like do taxes and write yeah. out our our private studio information pack to give to parents like late policy and cancellation policy and all kinds of right. real world practical awesome. things is very useful. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, um, these are things that, I mean, I'm really thrilled that they have that class because these are things that a lot of people just find out the hard way. Yeah. They get out of school and they think like, okay, I'm going to gig and I'm going to teach and I'm going to tour and I'm going to be this and that and record. And they don't, um, necessarily have an idea of how to put together, yeah, like a teaching contract. You know, if you if you're putting together a private studio, and every other week a kid is canceling, do you have a policy? Do they pay you? Did you just eat that time? Uh, you know, putting together that type of stuff. Um, learning how to teach, like it's really, it's harder. I think it's more challenging for me to get a student from point A to point B than it is to get myself from point A to point B. Oh yes. I, I know 
I feel like I know what to do to accomplish what I want. Um, but to try to teach a, a student that is, is really challenging. And, and it's, it's, again, it's like a constant, like lifetime mm. fluidity of changing your teaching up, knowing that each student's not the same person. So one approach doesn't work with yeah. one student the way it does with another one. And so, yeah, teaching, Again, it's like a whole nother aspect of music that you have to practice and you have to think about. You can't just think, uh, I need to make some money to pay for my rent, so I'll get some private students. It's it's so much bigger than that. Um, and that can tend to get lost sometimes. Um, uh, but yeah, so it, it it's wonderful for me at Mason especially because I get to see students for four years. Um, and you know, obviously they have a little bit of an incentive because they're being graded. Um, but to, to just learn how to take a student that's a freshman 17 or 18 year old that hasn't really had much jazz experience or guitar experience and try to get them by the time they're 21 or 22 to be ready to get out there. Um, and, and unfortunately I don't really get to talk to my students about teaching. So I'm glad that they have classes like that because I, there just isn't enough time to deal with all of these things. Unfortunately. I have, sometimes I run into, it's an internal struggle in myself with certain students. You know, some students respond well to, if you're hard on them, they step up their game. Some people, some right. tend to shut down. Sure. And uh, there's a fine line and I'm constantly trying to figure out where that is with each student. Cause sometimes, you know, you tell a kid, this is what I want you to do. And you're really nice about it. And you're, this is how you're going to get to where you want to get to. And then they, they show up the next week and they haven't done what you asked. Sure. And then maybe you try another week with the kind approach and then they don't do it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> if you want to get here, like you're not going to get here. I don't want you to like, there's no reason for you to be doing these lessons. If you're not going to practice what I'm going to practice, Right, you're you weird. have to say it tastefully and, but with the right amount of harshness to oh, make no. them feel <laughs> right. like they've got a responsibility to do what you're asking. Oh, no. right. yeah, like, luckily, I'm just as important as your basketball coach. <laughs> yeah. Luckily with the, the grading system, there's like a built in um, inherent incentive for the students to, mm -hmm. to, practice um i've found like when i would teach privately just private students at like a store or wherever at my house there's no they have no incentive other than just their own drive so i would tailor my kind of harshness i guess differently in different situations um i think with the college students i i feel like the older i get the kind of nicer i get um if i was teaching you maybe when i was 30 i would have had little to no tolerance for anything. Uh, now in my forties, I try to have more tolerance, but you know, honestly, I've had a couple of students in the past that have kind of talked to me as outside of lessons and said like, Hey man, um, I feel like I really want you to like be down on me. Like, I feel like you're too nice and I really want uh, you to bring kind of like that harshness all the time. Cause I feel like I need that. So sometimes students will just say like, Hey, Hey dude, I need the, I don't want the every week for you to kind of pat me on the back and say, good job. I want you to come down on me all the time. So, you know, then I try to, I tailor it a little bit to that without being too 
Um, you know, I, I don't want to berate a student just to berate them. Right. Um, but yeah, there are times where you have to kind of have a 20 or 30 minute chat with the student and say, Hey man, you, you got to get your proverbial stuff together and you know, maybe you're late to lessons, you're unprepared, maybe you don't show up to lessons. Um, and you know, at some point I might tell them like, you might want to rethink what you're choosing to do because if you kind of act like this, or if this is kind of how you're going to approach music, um, boy, you're going to have a really, really hard time, um, making it after school. So, yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm probably much nicer now. Uh, Darden, my wife tells me that I'm probably a little too nice and I've had some students say, Hey, you're too nice. Uh, I don't feel like I'm that nice, but I guess maybe I come <laughs> off too nice. So occasionally, yeah, I'll, I'll have some guys literally say, I, I look, I want you to kind of bring the pain. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, well I mean, sometimes, sometimes it takes that in terms yeah. of to expose your weaknesses. Uh, right. You know, you, you need to be called out on a lot of your things. And the same thing sure. with my students. I have the same thing happen. And uh, it is oftentimes when, you know, I'll have a student that's like, I will have that, that sit down discussion of why are you here? And please don't waste my time. And more sure. importantly, don't waste your time or sure. your money or your money. <laughs> yeah. Think about like cop man, George Mason. I don't know what, what it costs like, per year to go to George Mason, but whatever it is, it's tens of thousands of dollars. And, and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I have students, um, where, where I will get kind of harsh with them is that I will get the, um, the old, I haven't practiced this week because I had a paper to write. Hmm. And so I'll stop them and say, okay, so when you get out of school, are you planning on writing papers for a living? And they kind of chuckle and they're like, well, no, I don't want to write papers. And, and so I just say, Hey, you want to play guitar. You came here to school to play guitar, yep. but you decided to not practice this week because you had a music history paper to write. Um, I, you know, obviously I don't promote getting poor grades and classes, but I will tell students, maybe you need to adjust your time. And if you don't get that a plus on that paper, maybe you get an a minus or a B plus. But if you practice 10 hours, over the next couple days or week that will pay off for the rest of your life. The, the paper you'll forget about the paper, but the practicing has to come first. And then, you know, time management becomes really important. Um, yeah, I feel like with teaching, there's just so many elements to try to teach a young guitarist time management, how to play the instrument, how to be a professional, uh, you know, just lots of it's, it's much deeper and much heavier than just, Hey, make sure you know your major scales and your modes. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So can we jump back to your, your upbringing? You yeah, went to absolutely. music school in yeah, Pittsburgh. I went to Duquesne university. Yeah. Duquesne university yeah. in Pittsburgh. Um, and that was a great, that was like a, a super important experience, obviously in my life. They had a, a large guitar program, which, people out there prior thinking do I've never even heard of Duquesne university, uh, but they have a large guitar program. They had, I think when I was there, they had something like 40 guitar majors, Whoa. maybe 40 or 45 guitar majors between classical and jazz. And so consequently they had like five or six adjunct guitar teachers. Um, 
And it was amazing because each guitar teacher, like the one of the gentlemen I studied with most was a guy named Ken Karsh. And Ken was like phenomenal technician, could play jazz really well, could go out and play a show really well, do a wedding. Like he was kind of like the consummate um, jobbing guitar player, but just had like phenomenal, like literally mind blowing technique, but then also suffered from a carpal tunnel syndrome. So with Ken, I got like that, all the phenomenal stuff, but then also the side of him that would show you how to be healthy with your hands, how to warm up, how to make sure that you weren't going to have to have some kind of hand surgery because of overuse or repetitive stress injury. So he was amazing. He was probably the most important influence at that point. Um, but then they had a really great bebop guitar player, Joe Negri, who used to be on Mr. Rogers. He was handyman Negri. Phenomenal uh, kind of like swing bop guitar player. Still alive. He's in his 90s, I think now, and still plays great. Uh, they had another guy, Mark Cook, who was a big, like, on the fusion scene in Pittsburgh. Uh, the classical teacher, Tom Kitko, was great. Uh, Marty Ashby taught more Brazilian kind of styles. Um, so they had all these guys, and, and they were pretty cool with uh, having you switch around. So I did most of my time with the guy, Ken Karsh. But then one semester I studied with Mark Cook doing more fusion stuff, did some Brazilian stuff, took a, a semester of classical. So it was it was an amazing um, place for guitar, I think. I should say so. Uh, but yeah, no one's, I mean, Duquesne, it's just, you say Duquesne and people just sort of scratch their heads. But it was, I don't know what, it, I don't know if it's the same way now, but at that time there was just a ton of guitar majors, guitar players hanging around. Well, it really doesn't matter so much when, you, like, where you got your training. I feel sure. like if you received good training, it's not like you're going to typical job interviews. There's rarely a time where I need to spout any credentials as right. a musician. Right. I mean, the the um, yeah the the only downside with Duquesne was that I mean it was in Pittsburgh, so you made connections in Pittsburgh, but it was not. Um, the same as maybe like a North Texas or Miami where you were meeting a lot of musicians that were going to be out in the world after they graduated. Duquesne was kind of a pretty sequestered to like local um, musicians uh, and it was a bigger music ed school. So even though there was 40 or 45 guitar majors, I don't know how many of them ended up actually becoming like pro players. So it was like amazing in one hand, but then, I would stress to students um, where you go to school, uh, what connections you're going to make at school. So like George Mason University, it's a smaller university, but it's in Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. has such a huge uh, music scene that it's just a great place to be, not only because the faculty is really good, but also because you're in Washington, D.C. So there's just so many opportunities. It's, it's mind-boggling. Um, so that was the only thing I missed with Duquesne was at Pittsburgh, smaller city, uh, good music scene, but it wasn't anything like a DC or New York or LA. And so I, I felt like I maybe missed a little bit of that um, in my training there, just the connections. Um, but the actual like training was, yeah, it was outstanding. So where did you go after you graduated? What was the next step? Yeah. So about six months. So my whole goal when I was in 
college was that I wanted a tour and I wanted to move to New York. So it was like tour, New York, tour, New York. So about five months after I graduated, uh, Ringling Brothers Circus was in town and they would hire local musicians at that time. So I got hired to play for Ringling, but they were switching over to a self-contained band. Um, they had worked out with the music, musicians union to have self-contained band touring. And so after the first rehearsal, uh, the trumpet player, one of the trumpet players comes up to me and says, Hey man, are you looking to go out on the road? And so I was like, yeah, ding, 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 like tour, go to New York. So I'm like, yes, yeah, I would love to go on the road. And he said, okay. Um, so we did the rehearsals. We did a week run and the band leader invited me back to his train car after the last gig and just basically said, Hey, um, we're starting rehearsals for the next tour in three weeks. Would you want to do this gig? And I was just like, you know, hell yeah. Like I'm, I'm down, I'm ready. So it's like, it was a little, it was m one of my first experiences though. Cause I had a lot of gigs lined up. So I had to call all these people in Pittsburgh and basically say, Hey, all of these gigs you've booked me for three weeks from now, I can't, I'm not going to be there. Yeah. But um, it, yeah, it was great. I went out, uh, toured with Ringling for two years, almost to the day, two years. So a month of rehearsals and then literally about the first year was about 55 weeks without a week off touring. Wow. And then a couple weeks off and then another like 40 or 50 weeks for the second year. And so I completed the whole tour, which I think was like 90 some cities. It's crazy. I was unaware that Ringling even had, had a band. Well, now, I mean, now Ringling's just totally gone, right? unfortunately. Right. But yeah, at the time, they had a self-contained band of like, I think it was a nine-piece band. Um, and at the time, it was really cool, too, because Cirque du Soleil had become really popular. Mm -hmm. and so Ringling was kind of moving more towards that type of music. So it was very, uh, not super rock and roll, but kind of more rock and roll, like artsy artsy rock and more i guess uh, i don't even know how to describe it so it was cool for me as a guitar player because there was just so much stuff for the guitar in the show yeah but i just had a blast doing it uh, but two years was enough um, you know that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was like pre-cell phones and pre-internet yeah. or it was just like just coming on the scene so i remember um just like doing your laundry became like an entire day endeavor because I remember being in, in a train yard and getting a payphone, calling like a cab company. I think it was like in Dallas and the cab company asking like, well, which train yard are you in? There's like five or six. And you had no, you know, you had no idea. So it became this kind of right. day long frustration, just trying to, you know, wash your boxer shorts or whatever. Right. Um, but it was great. It was a great playing experience. I made really great connections. Um, Chops improved a lot, uh, developed tendonitis during that time because I was like a young kid. I was like 22, so I wasn't warming up, and we were playing constantly. So I got a nice early experience in how to treat my body better <laughs> and also overcome tendonitis while still doing 10 shows a week. Wow. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a great experience for me at that age because I was super young, and and it kind of checked that touring box um and yeah we had a lot of fun hmm. for sure i mean did you have like elephants on your tour train i mean you had the full 
Well, we had a bit of, I mean, a bit of a long story, but we had a, um, like my first train run in 94, we had a train wreck. Um, it was in Lakeland, Florida and our, our car got totaled. So I, I, within a month, I was like in a train that actually flipped off the tracks and got totaled. Oh my God. That was was sort of an experience in and of itself. Um, for the first year or so we lived in hotels because they lost like 20 or 30 train cars and it takes time to get, you know, I guess you can't just go down to the local train (laughs) train car dealer and get train cars. So yeah, I spent most of my time in hotels, but yeah, when we were on the train, yeah, you had all the, everything, the clowns, the, the acrobats, the, the animals, but the train was like about a mile long. So you weren't really, it wasn't like we were living in, a car where the next car down was a bunch of lions or something like that. Right. It was, it was definitely like separated out quite a bit, but yeah, it was the, it was the whole, it was the circus. Were you practicing on the train while you're traveling? Yeah, I practiced it. Like, so that was a really great thing about the circus was that it paid well. Uh, and you were, you were stuck there. And even though you were doing like 10 shows a week, it, you had a ton of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, 10 shows, two and a half hours a show, everything else like was free time and you couldn't go in it. Like you were on the road, so you could either practice or I guess do other stuff, but I practiced a lot. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was really important. And their drummer there that was really great. Um, we would get together before shows and just play. Um, and occasionally I would write stuff and have people come in like early before a show and play. So it was, it was very cool in that way. Like, Lots of time, didn't have to worry about paying bills, only had to worry about playing guitar. And that probably was the only two years of my life where I literally only had guitar to think about, Right. you know, didn't really have to think about anything else. So it was, it was a great time. I think I was 22 when I started that 22 to 24. Um, so it was wonderful. Like, I feel like that really just like technically when I came back off of that, like my chops felt just really great jazz playing. Not so great after two years of doing that, but, but just the actual like playing guitar physical aspect of it was really strong. And after, yeah. And after two years you were, you were done. You were, you had had enough. Yes, I had. had yeah. The, um, some, some guys would stay there. Like my roommate on the shows did the gig for, probably like 15 or 16 years because oh. it was, um, it was a union gig. It was good pay. You got yeah. pension. Yeah. You, it was benefits. So for a lot of musicians, yeah, man, they would stay out there and do it for a long time. But for me, two years kind of, I had done what I wanted to and I just felt like it was going to be more of the same. And I, I was ready for some other, from some other experience. Yeah. And and were you actively looking for something after those two years, or were you just kind of like, okay, I'm done with this? And and uh, yeah, I was like, I was going to move to New York. Um, that was my plan. So I moved back to Pittsburgh and was just doing gigs with the people that I had been playing with before I left. Yeah. Uh, and then about four or five months after that, um, the Air Force, uh, my grandfather called me and said, "Hey, the Airmen of Note, which is the Air Force's band in DC, is uh, holding an audition for guitar players and." I sort of blew it off. I was like, Ugh, yeah, Air Force, I don't know, Air Force, military, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and um, But they were like, man, it's a really great gig. So I just, 
was playing in Pittsburgh and, and was getting ready to move to New York and just sent like a cassette off to the air force. And then like a week or two later, got a call to get, I got invited out for that audition. Uh, didn't really want to do that necessarily, but figured I'll go audition. So I, I did that and got won that gig. Um, so pretty quickly after the audition moved from Pittsburgh and went to air force basic training and then moved to DC after that. And so that was, I was like 25 at that point. I think I turned 25, like in basic training, which was really awesome. That's not the best birthday. Probably military basic training. (laughs) You're getting yelled yelled at to wake up at four in the morning on your birthday. On my birthday. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I I planned on moving, I planned on the New York thing, but then uh, when the air force gig came up, that kind of sent me on a different, a different path, I guess. Yeah. So then you were, that was what, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, it was 96, 22, 23 years ago, almost. Uh, 26. So you've been in the military bands ever since. Uh, no, I, I, long story there too. I did uh, airman of note for eight years or almost eight years. Mm. Um, and then Darden was also in the air force band. Uh, oh. and we got married in 2001 and we both decided to leave the air force. So we both gave up uh, full-time music gigs and we moved to Nashville like in 2004, 2003, 2004. And so I spent eight years living in Nashville and then we went to um, Illinois after that. And we both did our doctorates at the Um, university of Illinois. Yeah. At the university of Illinois. So we spent about four years in Nashville and that was great. Um, and we just gigged and I taught at middle Tennessee state for a while. Um, and then Darden wanted to do her master's degree and there were no real like jazz vocal programs in Tennessee. So we ended up moving to Illinois because we knew the gentleman that, uh, runs the jazz program there. So, yeah, so we picked up again, moved to Illinois and lived there for about four years before coming back to DC. Hmm. So that was 2000 and, yeah, we went to like 12 to 2007 and then came back in 2011. What pulled you to Nashville? Um, actually, uh, my wife Darden really wanted to just go there and and gig and do session work. And yeah. so we, when we were still in DC, we went there for about a week just to visit and loved it. Um, and just, it was just like a really exciting place and a place where, you know, we had never been somewhere where you could like, walk down the street and starting at like noon, there's all these live bands like down on lower broad. And then if you're out till 2 AM, there's still bands playing on lower broad. So it was just a very exciting place um, musically. And so we just fell in love with it pretty, pretty much instantly. Like the first day we were there, first two days we're like, this is where we're going to go. Yeah. Um, and we didn't really know anybody. We knew we had one contact in Nashville. So we just, it was literally just like a leap of faith. We're going to move to Nashville and just see what happens. Yeah. Um, you guys are better than your average musicians moving there. Uh, well, uh, there, yeah, there's a Nashville is awesome. Um, there's a lot of like incredible guitar players. So I spent like my first year in Nashville quickly realizing that if I threw like a stone in any direction, I'd hit, a guitar player that was unbelievable, like amazing at what they did. And so it was a little bit of like, uh, Nashville was, uh, 
one part inspiration and one part depression. <laughs> it, was, it was inspiring because there was all these great players, but it was also depressing because it was like every day I would hear about some other player and I would go hear them and it, they were just, I mean, for as many guitar players that probably weren't that good, there was like twice as many people that would do stuff that I, I just couldn't believe, yeah. like were just shockingly good. Um, and it was just awesome because you were playing with these people and you were also able to just hop in your car or whatever and go drive 10 minutes and go see like unbelievable guitar playing. I mean, it was really like truly like ridiculous. Um, now it was mostly country. So if you weren't like a big country fan, maybe it wouldn't be quite as awesome, but just to see these players was just, yeah, it was crazy, crazy good. Yeah. I've always heard good things about Nashville and, uh, the one thing that I did, you know, I've always heard <laughs> kind of funny, but I've always heard about Nashville is, is that, um, <clears throat> beyond the circuit, uh, if you want to get a coffee or something like that, you, you can't cause everything closes down, <laughs> but, oh, that's, yeah. but that's very much changed nowadays. And yeah, uh, everybody's kind of going to Nashville now and it's building up more and more and more. Yeah. It was probably a little sleepier then, but it was, um, we moved there kind of about the time there was like a big migration of like a lot of musicians from Los Angeles because oh. Nashville was cheap yes. to live, yes. like super, like amazingly cheap. And um, so you had all these kind of transplant musicians coming from other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I've heard it's just like exploded, like yeah. horrible traffic, like super metropolitan. It was kind of getting that way when we were there, but it was still a little bit small. Like it was still manageable. Yeah. Um, but it was awesome. I mean, there was just, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable in one way because I had never done a gig before where at the end of the night I got like $4 and 13 cents because someone put a couple pennies in the tip jar and so split it up. Um, but then, but then you'd make four bucks, but the band would be like all these like unbelievable players that are like out touring with big name artists. Um, so it was, it was an interesting, it was really an interesting place at that time. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, but it was, it was cool. And it was a great experience and we're happy that we had it, but it was after a couple of years, we knew that it wasn't necessarily a place that we may stay the rest of our lives. Right. But the experience was really wonderful. And it was, it was weird too, because Nashville, and I, I don't know if there's anybody listening in Nashville, so I don't want to get flamed for this, but it was like the first, like I, I could read pretty well. And even at that age, and it was like the first place that we went where I felt like being a pretty good sight reader was not, at all a helpful thing. And I, and I remember even playing with like a band and, and they wanted me to learn something. And I said, well, do you have a chart? And they kind of like poked fun at me because they kind of said, Oh, you're one of those musicians that can read music. So it was, it was a little bit of an interesting, yeah. uh, It was an interesting place because so many great players, but then that player might not be able to read music so they had like the national numbering system yeah mm-hmm. um you would think. i remember doing a jazz gig there was a really great singer and i can't remember her name in nashville and she was like a big like backup singer touring backup singer but she was a jazz singer as well and we did some gigs and and whoever did her book did the jazz book in the numbering system so I'm like doing this four hour gig and like the tunes in like C major. And when they want to modulate to a flat major, it's like uh flat seven minor seven to flat three, seven to flat. Oh, that's 
much more major and i was like oh and i'm like oh it's just a two five in a flat major so it was like yeah. the whole night like deci deciphering like these hieroglyphic right. <laughs> numbering charts and i'm like man wouldn't it just be easier to write like right. b flat minor and not like all these numbers but um <laughs> but yeah it was a, it was a cool experience and we met um a lot of really uh wonderful musicians and made made a lot of like life lifelong friendships and connections right. there yeah, absolutely. I had the opportunity to go down there a few years ago. I have some friends that were in a big rock band in mm -hmm. the Washington, D.C. area that the whole band moved to Nashville. And they ended up breaking up after a couple of years there. And uh, the drummer and bassist now have a business where they they just back up anybody that needs a rhythm section. Right. They're called Mutual Groove. And they do a lot of cool yeah. stuff. So I went and stayed with them. And like you're saying, I had one of the best experiences of my life because all day people were just like friends would come and stop by and we'd be like the three of us would be playing music and sure that person would be sitting there hanging out maybe drinking a beer or something and then all of a sudden they'd pick up whatever instrument and they'd be insanely good and yeah yeah it was, like it was, oh my god you're an interest like everyone we dealt with like if you rented a car or bought a coffee or went to a restaurant like everybody was a musician or a songwriter or had a studio um so it was it was it was very cool i mean it was just like a cool place to be mm -hmm. in, yeah, um, now, in comparison then you said uh your wife w went up you guys went up to uh chicago illinois no <laughs> it was two hours south of chicago it was uh champaign uh, Urbana, illinois where the uh, u of i is so okay. small town really okay. small town so much different landscape Yes, much different Midwest, um, uh, really like artsy community. So mm -hmm. when we went there, you had this, uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. And that was actually a place that we thought we might stay the rest of our lives, ironically. Mm -hmm. But it was like a town of like 100,000 people. Uh, there was all this eclectic music ranging from like straight ahead jazz to to fusion to like lots of like experimental, like atonal kind of free stuff. And the town, like the folks in the town, um, like the townies, uh, they would support everything. So you could play like a gig of like Stella by Starlight with like a quartet and they would come out and love it. Or you could do like a whole night of just like free where there's no, no form, no nothing, and just like a bunch of noise. And the same people would come out and love it just as much. <laughs> um, and so it was a really, um, we loved it there. Uh, even more so than Nashville, uh, different vibe because it was like a small town. Yeah, super. The music school there, I think there's like a thousand music majors, um, and it's like a big electronic uh, music university. And so there was just all this like just interesting, different projects. Yeah, very cool. You know, like where they combine like strings with like fusion, and ha it was just it was cool. Like all kinds of stuff, and again. Uh, the champagne Urbana, like you weren't making, like you obviously weren't retiring on the money you were making at these gigs. Um, but so many great players and just like, you got to be a part of so many different projects, so many different styles and everyone just kind of, it was a very, um, community based area where everybody knew everybody and everybody supported everybody. And it was just, you know, we just had fun there. And I thought, you know, thought we would stay there, but then, uh, again, ended up leaving. Yeah. And you, you left because of the, 
because of the military band again or yeah teaching we were at illinois and we were hoping to teach there um uh and but it was like kind of during like 2008 when like the economy kind of crumbled and the housing market bubble burst and so when we were getting ready to graduate they were like furloughing professors at u of i so we quickly uh realized that we probably weren't going to be able to get any kind of teaching gig there because they were laying people off so it was just a weird time and so i was teaching at national guitar workshop we were we were all set to leave illinois and moved to indianapolis and we had some teaching gigs lined up darden and i both did she was going to teach it like millican and i was going to teach at a place in indianapolis and i was teaching at national guitar workshop and one summer i had like four camps and it was like in austin texas sandy spring maryland nashville and chicago so i was like in my honda civic driving to all these camps because they were kind of back to back and i got an email from the jazz director at illinois saying you might not be interested in this but one of your students might the naval academy band is looking for a guitar player so i deleted it i deleted the email (laughs) and and um so i'm teaching at camp and and darden calls me and she's like hey did you get that email uh from chip chip mcneil the guy that sent it i said yeah i deleted it and she said well it's a premier band uh and it's in dc in the DC area. And she was like, you know, would sure be nice to move back to DC because all of our families from DC and Pittsburgh East coast. So this was like in the beginning of July. So I drove back from one of the camps and I immediately like overnighted materials for the Academy. Cause I just never, once I left the military band, I just never had any aspirations to ever do it again. Not that it was a bad experience. It was just, I had done it for eight years and I just didn't want to, do it again right and so i sent the materials and one of the guys that was at the band at the time i don't know if i had gigged with him when i was first in dc but he knew my name and so he called me and said you know are you really wanting this gig and i was like well yeah you know sure and he's like okay um so they invited me out to the audition and you know in true like music business fashion we were moving from our townhouse in Champaign or our house on like August 1st to Indianapolis. So we had a U-Haul lined up The audition for the Academy band was July 29th. So <laughs> I drive to DC because we can't really afford to fly. And I wanted to take my gear. And so Darden is uh, calling the U-Haul company saying, we're either taking this U-Haul to Indianapolis or we're going to, moved to DC. So it's like July 29th. I go on audition. I win the audition. I called Darden and I said, I won the audition. So her parents like bought plane tickets, flew to Illinois. I drove back to Illinois. And like the next day we unloaded the house and moved to DC like that day because our lease was up. So it was like very like not stressful, but just kind of a bizarro. Yeah time because we then we had to call all of the people like we were about to start teaching at these schools and we had to call them and say hey we're not going to be there in like two weeks right to do these gigs and so yeah so we moved back to dc and um i did the naval academy band for about a year year and a couple months and then the commodore's guitar player retired did another audition there and then won that gig and then uh, we didn't have to move because it was in the same area, but switched over to the DC DC band. So yeah, I never really had any kind of like 
inclination to get back in. Um, but it just, I guess I was just meant to, to get back in. So now I've been, I think I've been in the military almost 15 years now, even though I got in 23 years ago initially. Yeah. You yeah. start out as an E6, right? When you yes. Join? If, you're, if you go to the DC bands, you start as an E6. Um, okay. Each band has like fleet bands and field bands all over the world. They don't have that same uh, deal, but in the DC, the military has like, they, it's like a special promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to attract, you know, like most of the DC bands, you, you get older musicians that have been out playing already, already have a career, but maybe want the steady income, the benefits. Mm-hmm. And so we'll get most of the time, like late twenties through early thirties. Um, and so that promotion helps to entice, um, musicians of that caliber to come and, and do those gigs. Cause it, it really does seem like a great, if you want a steady income kind of job, but you want to be playing music. I mean, in E6, it's published on the internet. Yeah. Anybody can look what military members paid. Yeah. You're starting out at $2,600 a month plus BAH, the housing allowance. Yeah, I think the I think in the Navy band now, if you win the gig and you're single, it's like sixty two thousand dollars with everything starting. starting and then, yeah, and then if you are married, uh, the way the military works is you get like the extra like dependent pay. So I think if you're married and you come in, it's like sixty seven or sixty eight thousand dollars, like right out of the gate. Um, Which and is then more than you're going to make playing typical gigs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. And you're working during the day, so you potentially have like sometimes a like, yeah, normal life. Think about that, you know, you're thinking like, okay, if someone comes in making sixty-eight thousand, if they're doing like hundred and fifty-dollar gigs in general, that's like I don't know how many gigs you'd have to do, but like seven hundred of those. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a great. Um, the the pay and the benefits is yeah it's amazing I mean it's amazing it's almost like yeah you feel like you're getting away with something or <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. yeah you get healthcare you get healthcare. housing yep. which is untaxed you get training I mean you're getting you have you get to go to the Navy School of Music right uh, have- actually the DC band does not do that so like if you go to DC band you just go you check out from basic training and you go directly to E6 in the Navy band. If you're in the fleet band system, like um, we have some students that have done that and are doing that right now, they go through the, like the music school and then they get sent wherever they're going to get stationed. But yeah, for DC you go like, it's like basic training right to the band. Okay. Which is awesome. And do you feel like the music, I mean, in general, the music is very, you play, I guess you have different, types of bands right yep. like some are jazz some are rock some are yeah we have like the between... jazz band there's a cruisers rock band country currents like a bluegrass country there's like a mixed chorus concert band um and then like the ceremonial units and they're all i don't want to say they're all separate um because occasionally people do cross over and play with different bands like if someone's on leave or if someone's out for some reason um but it's pretty separated out so it's like i'm not um like i play in the commodore so i've never actually played with the country band or the rock band i've played with the concert band like if they have something if they're maybe doing like a pops concert where there's guitar um i've done that but yeah it's pretty like for me most of my gig is playing like either with the big band or playing uh 
like what they call protocol events, which are just events where you're playing background music. So it's like a background gig, but it's military. So it's a protocol event. Um, and doing like a lot of that kind of stuff, like trio quartet, solo guitar. Um, but yes, it's, it's 99% jazz. Wow. You know, so I'm getting paid to play jazz essentially by the government. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) And you get to play at some pretty high profile events is yeah you get like uh we have a i'm not doing it this week but we have a trio that's playing like at the vice president's house Mm -hmm. um you know white house occasionally um lots of just yeah lots of high level events um but i'd say most of our gig is more public based so like our one of our main missions is just kind of going out and doing tours um so kind of bringing like touring places and playing places where maybe people don't ever have an interaction with the military. So we're much more of like a public affairs, uh, people in like small towns, like in the middle of the country can come out and see like what their tax dollars are going to. So they can see like, okay, here is something that the military is doing that I'm paying for with my taxes. And this is good. Like I enjoy this. Uh, it's, you know, good like community relations and then public concerts in DC. And um, so the protocol stuff, some of that, but most more like kind of PR public relations, public concerts, some educational as well. Yeah. Um, Have you had the opportunity to play overseas at all? Uh, I did when I was in the air force, like when I was in the air force, the airman and note traveled a lot, like a lot, a lot. Um, maybe even more so than I would have liked. But yeah, we played, I think we did like 17 or 18 different countries when I was in the Air Force. Wow. Um, so like, you know, anywhere from like Belgium, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, um, uh, countries in the Middle East. So yeah, I think it was like 17 or 18. With the Navy, um, have not traveled overseas. Uh, went to Ireland for a couple of days, but it was just a very short trip. Um, with the Commodores, it's mostly like, in the United States. Right. What do you have? Do you have advice for anybody that, that is interested in potentially joining one of the military bands? Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, sight reading is super important. Um, so I spend, it's not like I sight read all day long every day, but you know, we rehearse three, four or five days a week, depending on our gigging schedule. And so people are bringing in new charts all the time. Um, we have different performances where maybe we support like a, a young composers competition, for instance. So then we have to sight read 10 or 12 charts and be able to perform those. So sight reading becomes uber important. Um, yeah, same thing as like any gigging musician, just like getting the appropriate sounds, knowing that if you're playing like a, a heavy, like rock fusion tune that you need like a good solid overdrive sound um, how to, for me, it's like fitting in with a big band, like, uh, guitar players rarely play like with a sax section or a trombone section. So just, um, you know, if people are guitar players, especially looking for that type of gig, like if they're playing in their big bands at universities, like really trying to make the most of that experience. Cause that's a bulk of my, my gig. Um, but yeah, the reading, reading thing is key and just being cool. You know, so like if we have an audition uh, and someone comes in and they're a bit 
jerky maybe or a bit just kind of i don't know have a strange vibe it's like you pick up on that and you know you could spend conceivably 20 or more years with these people (laughs) so you know sometimes being like a cool person and a cool hang can sometimes even trump the playing Mm. it's like if someone's just a little bit better of a player but they're kind of a jerk um I'd rather be with like someone that's a little less of a good player, but is like a really fun hang and a cool, cool person. So I'd say just, you know, being professional and just knowing how to get along with other folks because you're just with the same folks for so long, different than gigging. I mean, you know, you need to be cool to be a gigging musician, but you're playing with different people all the time. So if you do have like a little bit of a dust up with someone Maybe it's not the end of the world. You don't have to address it. But like with our gig, if two people kind of, if their relationship goes south, you're you're still in that room with that person for a long time. So you have to just learn how to get along with people for sure. Yeah, and and you are representing obviously. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, so. and and yeah, being like, um, you know, we don't uh, like there's probably misconceptions. Like I'm not at the Navy yard at 7am doing like PT doing pushups with the, with the band. Um, but you know, you, there's, yeah, you have to maintain like a certain appearance, uh, make sure that when you put, I mean, and it's again, it's like kind of like normal life, making sure like when you put your clothes on that, they're not all, they don't look like they've been balled up in your trunk of your car for the last two months. Right. Uh, you know, bathing <laughs> you know, just, just like present yeah giving like a good professional presentation so i anything almost everything about being a professional musician carries over to like if someone wanted a military gig but i would say that the sight reading thing like if your sight reading is great um your chances increase exponentially if you can't really read uh it really hurts you and all of those other things might not overcome the reading thing. So reading, yeah, really important. Yeah. But being in big band at Mason was a uh, quite yeah. the experience. Yeah. And, and people like, so for the Commodores, it's like people write for specifically for us a lot. So it, there's a lot more in the guitar mm-hmm. book than people might imagine. Um, so yeah, that becomes, that's like my crusade is to just like make sure that all of my students can read really well because almost every, gig that i've done that's like a steady gig that pays well and has benefits and stuff has been in large part like due to reading like show work the circus military gig like all of them if i was a poor sight reader or couldn't sight read all of those gigs would just be i wouldn't have gotten them and they would be like uh I don't know, like it would just be like a nightmare trying to keep it. Like if I couldn't read that well, keeping up with the Commodore's book would just be like a constant, like I'd have to devote my entire life to it. Right. Like I'd be like, sight. everybody else would be like hanging out and I'd be like sight reading until like, or reading until one in the morning every night trying to keep up. So yeah, sight reading is like super, super big one. It's something that most, I mean, your average guitarist who's not in, you know, academia, in the world of academia your average guitarist doesn't read treble clef or actual yeah. music. You get they so read it much. They could still like, um, I don't know how much reading like say our country band does. So like 
maybe if you're a country guitar player and you're trying to get a gig with the country band and the military, maybe the reading wouldn't be as big, but then that guy, uh, the guy that's in the country band right now, Joe Friedman's like a great jazz player, lived in New York. Uh, he can read really well. It's like you're, you're going to at some point be faced with playing with some other group where you have to. So it just, it, it's like, I feel like you can never escape reading. Yeah. Unfortunately, as much as I'd love to. <laughs> well, it, it can't hurt you. That's for sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, so that would be the biggie, but yeah, just being cool. Like when it really boils down to it, it's like, I just nowadays love being on gigs where people are just cool and I have fun and I know people. And it's like, I, I don't want to say I would trade that for the level of musicianship, but I, I would trade it a little bit more the older I get mm. to just not have like a bad experience. Yeah. Gigging. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to the reading thing. I, uh, it kind of connects with what we were talking about with the practicing earlier. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't read really before I decided I wanted to go back to school. I had read on the piano for years and on the viola growing up. Um, but then like, I never really had a reason to read on the guitar. Right. Yeah. Trouble clef, like playing rock music and whatever. Um, I started, you know, you can go through the basic books, but, uh, I was using melodic rhythms. That mm-hmm. book was really yeah, helpful. The book is great. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was really good. Like you really need to build reading time into your practice schedule. Like Absolutely. it might be 10 minutes a day or 10 minutes every other day, whatever it is, it becomes something that has to be just a general part of your practice schedule. If you sure. want that to be a skill that you're going to have. Sure. Yeah. For a gigging musician, I, that's the only thing that I'll tell people to do every day. Like if you miss a day of scales or if you miss a day of technique, that's fine. But just read every day. Um, Cause you know, I think we all know as guitar players that no matter how good you get, there's always going to be someone that's better. So I'm thinking like, no matter how good of a jazz improviser I am, there's always going to be someone better. No matter how good of a rock player I am, someone's going to be faster, have more technique. But I do know that, in general, guitar players tend to be a little lower on the reading spectrum. So I realized younger that if I could read pretty well, like even if you leave, read like a lead sheet, like it seems like uh, if you can read a lead sheet, other instrumentalists think you're like a genius. <laughs> you can just read like the head to a tune. Yeah. Um, so we, we kind of, people have different expectations for us as guitar players. So I'm like, if you can read really well, like you'll get, <laughs> you'll get a certain amount of stuff because of that. Even if maybe there are better jazz players or something, you're going to get some type of work that none of those people can get because they can't read as well. And I mean, let's face it. We're guitar players. We're terrible readers. It's like, if you, like I feel like I'm a pretty good sight reader, but if I put myself up against uh, like a tenor saxophonist, even like the worst tenor saxophonist reads at the same level as like a genius guitar player reader. Um, so just being able to read a little bit is important. And if they can develop that reading to be like pretty good, it there's so many opportunities that will come from that. It's It's mind boggling. <laughs> I feel like it's not quite fair the the way that the guitar is laid out mm-hmm. like like I'm by far and away best at reading around the fifth position. Yeah. And I know that and I try to 
move to different areas in my practicing. But if I like sit down and I've got a sight sight read something well, like I'm gonna automatically go to the fifth position if it makes sense with sure. the range of the tune. Yeah, I but, mean, like, I as soon as you move to a different position, everything's out the window. That you know. Yeah, yeah. Guitar is like really. Um, yeah, it's a challenge because it's like if you want to play like say a uh, C, there's like five or six of that same note on the instrument. Or if you want to yeah. play voicing, there's like the same four notes. There's three or four different ways to play them. Mm. Uh, I, I do think that we're at a bit of a disadvantage because of that. Because like on piano, it's like middle C is right there. Yeah, like you, there's no like five different spots on yeah. the piano for middle C. So yeah, guitar players like we're sort of a bit handicapped out of the gate, but uh, you know, yeah, like like what you're saying, like reading in a specific position can be helpful because like fifth position, for instance, like you get more or less everything that's going to be written for the guitar with like a few little spots. Maybe you have to jump out of that yeah. position. It's yeah. to go um, a little high sometimes. But yeah, that's that that's helpful. I mean, that's if guys do it that way, then that's totally cool. You know, I, I would say there was a really great book called. Um, written by a guy named Tom Bruner. He was like a Las Vegas show guitar player. And he was the first guy, I can't remember what it's called, but it's still out there. You probably find it on Amazon. Uh, he actually would read in regions. So he would like break the guitar up into like, maybe like third through eighth fret was a region. And then like mm -hmm. fifth through 12th was a region. So that was really cool and eye opening for me because I had always been taught like positions. So I'm reading this in the third position fifth position, seventh, this guy like expanded it to be more of a region. And that, that made more sense and was helpful. And he would write these like bizarro, like atonal etudes that were in this region. And that book in particular was really helpful, uh, you know, along with the melodic rhythms book, but that's more melodic rhythms is much more kind of tonal and much more positional. Um, so the Tom Bruner thing was really helpful. So if there are guitar players out there that are looking to help, with the reading the top like seek out just tom bruner and i can't remember the name of the book right now i've got to step up my, my yeah. reading but yeah guitar is weird man it's like i still um you know i'll make my guitar players like learn all their drop two voicings and we'll get to like the bottom four strings and i'm kind of like uh uh i need to like work on this myself but you know everybody kind of has their certain things that they gravitate towards you just want to like keep widening that that I guess bag of stuff that you can do. So it's like, they, I'm, I'm sure when I sit down with students like at Mason, they, I don't try to give them like the vibe that I know everything about the guitar, but they probably, I don't know if they're shocked when I'm like, Oh, I don't know this drop two like on the bottom four strings, but yeah, there's just things that we all gravitate towards and we just keep kind of working to widen that range and kind of like knock down those barriers, I guess. Same thing with reading, you know, I can't read like if you made me read something like up above the 12th fret, it would it'd just be painful for me. Um, so I, you know, I try to overcome that, you know, compensate for that, but still try to sight read like in 12th position to try to better myself to some extent. But yeah, I'll gravitate towards like fifth, sixth, seventh position for sure. Uh, yeah. One question that I would have is, is how, did your see you did come to DC from Illinois? Mm -hmm. How did you get into Mason, and how did that whole thing begin? And then, um, 
I, I am interested in this, this idea that you do teach on a college level students. Um, that, that fascinates me. <laughs> I, I, I really in, like that aspect in terms of um, the educational field of right. people coming into college specifically for guitar and jazz. Sure. Uh, a lot of, you know, our listeners and then me specifically um, continuing education and what mm-hmm. that, that all really appeals to me. Um, so how, like, again, how did, how did that whole thing begin? How did you get into being a, a professor at Mason? And then, um, the whole aspect of being a professor um, right. and, and teaching loads of students and, yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and that whole journey of, of that being able to teach. On sure. College. Um, yeah, I think I started teaching, uh, well, I taught at Mason like in the nineties when I was first in DC. Um, and Jim Carroll, who was the founder of the jazz program, hired me and I taught there for a couple of years. And that was like my first taste of like teaching on the college level. I had never done it before. And I was probably like maybe late twenties. Um, so I didn't really fully grasp the impact at that point. It was just at that point for me, it was just kind of like, I show up, I teach lessons, right. You know, kid a doesn't practice. So I just tell him like, Hey man, like you got to practice. And then kid B is really good. And so we, you know, it was just kind of that, uh, I, I didn't really treat it as like being a professor or anything. It was just like, I'm showing up and getting paid to teach lessons. I just happened to teach them at this school. Right. Um, then when we went to Nashville, I had a friend that taught, that ran the program at middle Tennessee state university. Okay. And so we moved to Nashville and he wanted to hire me to teach there. And what I quickly learned, and this was a great experience was he said, yeah, I want, I'd love to have you teach here. Okay, great. And then as the semester got closer, he said, do you have your master's degree? And I said, nope, sure don't. And he said, oh, man, he's like, uh, I can't, I can't even float your name right. to, to these people. They'll just, th- there's no way. So why don't you get your master's degree here and then we'll put you on faculty. So I begrudgingly did a master's degree, but started to get more insight into maybe um, how academia worked um, more kind of like of that sort of pseudo like scholarly, you know, doing papers, research, um, hanging around professors and teachers there now is like an older, like now I'm in my thirties seeing that it's more than just teaching like lessons to to students. Um, So I taught there for a little bit and then we got, the doctorate like so then we started thinking like well maybe teaching at the college level is kind of something that we want to pursue so we when we got the doctorate to illinois we were there for like four years Mm. and i was the ta there and they had no guitar teachers so i taught all the guitar students jazz guitar students there as a doctoral student um and that was like super eye-opening like we learned so much about just how universities work how programs work what universities are looking for. So like nowadays you can't even get, and it's unfortunate, but it's just the way it is. Um, the, you can't even get an adjunct teaching gig at a college without a master's degree. Like they just won't, unless it's maybe a private school that can do things the way they want them. But if it's like a state school funded, uh, maybe I guess you could get it with a bachelor's degree if you're like a big name person, but 
for everybody else, like the rest of us got to have a master's degree. And now even like they're wanting doctorates to teach like adjunct part-time. And certainly if you wanted a full-time teaching gig, yeah, definitely the doctorate. So when we came back, I had my doctorate and um, I taught at Towson for a couple of years. Like the Naval Academy did a gig at the Towson university and they just happened to be looking for a guitar teacher. And the guy, I guess, liked how I played. And, And so I taught there for like, two and a half years, three years. Uh, but after three years, the commute, it was like 80 miles each way, two days a week, right. um, got to me. And so, um, Darden, my wife was teaching at Mason, but now she runs the program. They were looking for like another guitar teacher, uh, cause they had too many students. So I just applied and had to go through the, even though I taught at Mason in the nineties, had to go through, through the same thing, like where they did a search, yeah. like a regional search, like in the East coast, I think in Midwest and, you know, interview audition, you know, do like the audition again. Yep. And so now I'm, I've been there for about four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I, I mean, I, I don't fully understand still what it's like to be a professor, but now I, I realize that it's much more, it's how much of an impact you can have on a student either positively or negatively. Right. Um, but yeah, so the, um, being a professor, I mean, I don't really even like think about it. Um, it's similar to like when I play with the Navy, it's like, even though I'm in the military, it's like when I'm playing, I'm not necessarily thinking about that specifically. Same thing at the university, um, level, but I would say that, you know, for people out there that maybe want to teach at the college level, Mm -hmm. um, just having the academic credentials now, for better or for worse is a must. So, you know, get a master's degree. Um, if they want full-time teaching gigs, doctorate is almost a hundred percent required now. And most schools, when they advertise the position, will say doctorate preferred or required. And master's is always put as required for a job listing. Um, and just kind of, uh, you know, I, don't, I think my experience is now, you know, I, I don't want to say that that schools wouldn't hire like younger musicians, but I just kind of feel like for me, I'm much more suited to it now than I was when I first taught at Mason back in the nineties. Yeah. I just have experienced more stuff. Like right. just um, more, almost anything that a student can come to me with and same thing with any professor or any, I mean, really any teacher, but especially at the college level, any students that have like a, an issue or a question about something I've pretty much lived all of those things. Right. Um, so, you know, just trying to bring that experience to that situation. Um, and so like in a way, like I like that aspect of it. I also like the private teaching aspect where if you're teaching privately, maybe you don't get as involved in the people's lives maybe but maybe you do sometimes. Um, and there's like a, a positive experience to that where it's just like, okay, we're just doing music and I'm just going to focus on music with you. Whereas the college kids, I feel like you're kind of part, part psychiatrist, <laughs> part, uh, part like authoritarian where you're like scolding them for stuff. And, and, you know, I, I think most people take that seriously, but I I take it more seriously now than I did. Like if I was like 25 year old Sean teaching at George Mason, right. I wouldn't care about the other stuff. 
um, as much. And now I realize like how important that is to have those interactions and just to make the connections with um, the students. So it's like if, if I'm training guys to be professional musicians, you know, I want them to like, I want us to have a positive experience too, just because when they get out of school, I want to recommend them for stuff. And I would also want them to recommend me for stuff. You know, that's, that's like another thing. It's like, I have a lot of students that they'll have a gig that they can't do. And I'll say, Oh man, you know, Hey, if you ever in a bind, like, let me know. And they just kind of look at me like you would want to do this gig that I was supposed to be on. And I'm like, well, yeah, like I'm, I'm a guitar player. I'm a musician. Like I want to, yeah. So just kind of having like that relationship of professor to student, but then also quickly in a couple of years, you're going to be peers. Right. Um, right. And just trying, trying to make their experience, like, trying to like get them to point B, but helping them along the way with like other types of issues, you know, mm-hmm. like the invariable guy that's has some kind of like personal problems and they maybe bring it up. So then you kind of delve into that personal aspect of things um yeah that that's kind of what the professor thing means to me now and i'm sure my wife darden agrees it's like just kind of helping to train people to be like professional yeah people yeah and then lastly what would you say to any potential students that who are looking to go into a music program uh that may find uh, jazz studies a little intimidating? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I would just say to, to, even though it is intimidating, I think for every, even for everybody to, to try to be open to it and try to not try to like enjoy that experience or enjoy that journey. Um, I, I would say like if they, if they enjoy it and have a love for jazz that, that the intimidation aspect of it will kind of quickly go away. And that's partially on the professor as well. Mm. Um, so my job is to also try to make something that's maybe intimidating, feel a little less intimidating. Um, also like for any student really like not even jazz students to, to have students realize that it's like a 50, 50 experience. So uh, especially with jazz, um, I will sometimes get students like right now I have a really great stable of, of students, but I will at times get students that don't like jazz. Mm. They like, they'll, they don't hesitate to tell me like, Hey man, I don't like jazz, but I don't want to be a classical guitar player. And that's all I got. Those are my options. Um, I would say like, aside, aside from those folks, which are a little bit more of a, uh, that's a little bit deeper, dive to get them into it uh, is to realize that you bring 50 50 to the lesson. So my best experiences with students are students that don't just wait for me to tell them what's next. Um, you know, we all, uh, you know, we all as young guitar players are just like fascinated. Like when I was fascinated with like kiss or whoever, you just find that you just go do it. Um, I didn't wait for like a teacher to tell me, to check out kiss and learn that I just heard it and loved it. So the students have to kind of realize that if they're showing up week after week saying, Hey, Dr. Purcell, I did drop two voicings kind of, 
Now what do I do? Well, keep working on that, but then do this. Then the next week, okay, well, I did those two things. What do I do now? That's that's not like a great experience. The the best experiences are the students that come to me week after week saying like, hey, man, like I was checking this out, but then have you heard of this guitar player? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah, I was checking him out, and I started to transcribe some stuff, and I think he's doing this. Like, what do you think? Yeah. That's a more positive experience than the kid that's like every week like, okay, I did this. Now what do I do? I haven't done any planning on my own part. I haven't listened to anything new. I just did exactly what you told me. Um, and so the students that aren't maybe into jazz as much are intimidated by it right out of the gate are usually a little bit more like that. They haven't found that curiosity yet right. for jazz. So I would say for them to try to find that and develop that. And then, you know, if you're taking jazz lessons at the university level and then by the end of year two, you're still thinking, I don't really like jazz then, you know, I would, I, I'm never really one to tell them do something else, but if you're getting a degree and after a couple of years, you just don't like that style of music that, you know, that's a problem. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's like writing a paper on a subject that you don't want to write a paper on. It's like the whole time it's just this work and there's no enjoyment and you're just trying to like get it done and get through that to get onto something that you enjoy, like the, the jazz lessons or your experience at music school shouldn't be that it shouldn't be like writing a paper on a topic that you don't like. Um, and so some students, I have had students in the past, um, kind of move on to another major and, and end up happier because they just say like, frankly, I don't like jazz. I don't listen to jazz. I don't go hear jazz. Um, and, you know, at some point you just have to realize that that's not, that's not like a recipe for success. Yeah. Um, so they should at least have, I think they should at least bring some enjoyment right out of the gate. Like if they just hate it right out of the, right from the start, um, I'll work with them. Um, but yeah, just to kind of think about that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to scare anybody off. Well, no, I, I think the more that you can break down those as an individual, the, the more that you can break down those walls and, and be more accepting to mm -hmm. different styles of music, I think sure. you're, you're well on your on your journey. That's that's part of the process of opening right. yourself up as a musician and learning more and more and being able to, let's just say you are a, a rock player or a metal player or whatever it is, and the acceptance of saying, okay, I may not be in it. Right. Uh, but at least now I can understand these concepts and incorporate them into what I'm already sure. doing and making yourself a better player by doing that. Yeah. Versus, no, that's good. Yeah. Versus kind of just always holding up this wall against it and saying, no, I'm not, I don't really enjoy jazz and I'm going to be against it. Well, that's you right. You need to reassess here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're that way, then I would say maybe look for like another, uh, career path or another like major right. but yeah like i i've i've got rock guys that study with me like right now that that they'll say like i'm not going to be like a, a professional jazz musician which is fine yeah. um but they're like man I, I really dig like jimmy herring or i really dig like Derek trucks or these people mm -hmm. and so i i realize that they're using uh improvisational elements that are taken from jazz so even though they're not themselves like hugely like jazz 
guitarists are loving jazz. Like they love that, those elements. So they, they do the work, they, they study it, they do the transcribing and then they kind of bring that to their, the style that they play. And that, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's great. That's perfect. Yeah. It's a huge deal to be able to, to take, it, it took me a while to connect rock playing and jazz really well, but like you were saying with Jimmy Herring and, and guys like early Robin Ford mm-hmm. and Larry Carlton, there's all these players that infuse jazz elements into their rock playing and or blues playing. And like you, you have to play some straight ahead jazz in order to learn how to play that way. Sure. And then there's that day that you realize you can have your overdrive pedal on and like, yeah, you know, you're playing a rock solo and you just like throw this, bebop kind of licking and like right. you don't draw it out too much but it's it's amazing what it can do oh yeah yeah and i'm playing I in that, other genres yeah i remember that was a big thing for me like because i was like such a huge steve i fan and i remember him talking about um whatever time he was at berkeley that he would spend time like each day reading out of the real book mm-hmm. so i'm thinking like okay here's this like guy that uh doesn't it you know high school sean doesn't think he sounds like a jazz guitar player but he's saying like you know i read every day out of the real book and learn like my jazz voicings and stuff and i'm like man that's awesome like that's great like i i want to learn all that stuff even just just as like to better myself as a musician even if i don't end up being like a jazz or a rock or whatever player i'm gonna end up like i want to know all of that stuff yeah to bring to whatever i do yeah, and in your compositions, I mean, understanding jazz harmony is just—it's incredible. In yeah, like, in I mean, I, I, man, I I feel like the there's no amount of information that's going to be like there's never like a negative impact on knowing something new, you know. So if you like, if someone, even if someone's like a a death metal guitar player, but they like want to like, uh, you know, think about like a guy like Alex Skolnick, who I think was, was he in a band called like Testament or something? Yep. Testament. Yep. Um, so he, he like kind of quit that and became like a jazz guy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so even if he didn't become a jazz guy, even if he stayed like in Testament, uh, you know, you can bring those elements to that music or just like better, like just learning more stuff. Uh, I still get fascinated with watching like people. I don't really finger tap ever, but I'm still blown away and get super like excited and download videos and like instructional things on like, you know, sweep picking or finger tapping stuff that I don't, I'm maybe not going to do on a jazz gig, but it's still cool to me. I still want to like learn how to do it and yeah, yeah. have fun doing that. So, I mean, I guess in the end, I would say that the biggest thing that I would say to anybody, but especially students is that it should be fun to play. So if, if, if it constantly feels like work and it's not enjoyable to you, that would be the the big red flag. Um, But yeah, just take, take whatever your teachers give you or take whatever you're learning or want to do and just enjoy that and be open to new stuff and try to enjoy that as well that i mean in the end that's really the big thing because if you don't enjoy like if we didn't love playing guitar why did you know why would you do it yeah yeah you know 
yeah, the best students, like you said, are the ones that you give them the, uh, their coursework or their homework, and then they come back with, you know, that and more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be curious, you know, be curious. It's it's not um, guitar lessons on the college level is not like taking like your theory three class where you just do the work as quickly as possible to get done so that you can hang out with your friends or get to other stuff. It, it should be the thing that it you're constantly like seeking out new information and being curious and wondering about stuff and then bringing it to your teacher. Like uh, think of the teacher as a guide as opposed to just like your teacher, like someone that you can come to and say like, Hey man, I was checking this out. I don't understand it, but I love it. It's cool. Can you help me with this? That's great. Those are my best lessons is like some, some student that says like, Hey, I was checking out Alan Holdsworth and he does this like, really crazy lick what is this yeah and then we've kind of like figured out to get you know it's like you kind of do it together and it's great and it's a good experience and and you know i the students need to also learn that teachers learn as well mm-hmm. so if you bring a new guitar player to me uh i'm gonna get something out of it as well mm-hmm. so again like win-win yeah and and the, the student often sees you light up and you're like, ooh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that all these kids like think that when they get with a teacher that the teacher knows every, like there's nothing that this teacher doesn't know and that they're like a ro- robotic, like, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know what the perception is, but yeah, I get as excited as they do to hear a new guitar player or hear some new, new thing. Yeah. Awesome. I I know you've got a this wet five hour wedding gig, so yeah. we want to be yeah. <laughs> you know cognizant of your time. But thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Hey, thanks guys. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. I had a blast. I'd love to do it anytime again for sure. Yeah, yeah awesome. And and we would actually really like to have Darden on as well. That'd be great. I'm sure we, she would love to do that. Yeah. That would be wonderful because we've not had any uh, singers on, or at least nobody who's like first and foremost a singer. Sure. We've not had any females on. Oh, really? <laughs> True. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No. Not on purpose at all. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Well, yeah. Thank, thank you again, Sean. We really do appreciate it. It's, Thanks, guys. I appreciate fun. it. Yeah, it was yeah. a blast. It was a blast. So, all right, guys. All right, yeah. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Yeah. You too. Bye. Yeah. Bye.